it might not be what you'd expect to find in the Ozarks of northwest Arkansas. Coming up, the director of the Crystal Bridges Museum explains that showing five centuries of American art is just part of its mission. That's what we're trying to do, is really create the idea of what is an American. It meant something very different in the 18th century than it means today. Drive an hour north and the murals in Joplin will tell you you've arrived at the Mother Road. The highway that Americans once drove from the Midwest to Southern California is now mostly a nostalgic road trip into the 20th century. Rick Antonson shares what he found when he went looking for Route 66. And you would feel like you stepped across the threshold into the 1940s or the 1950s. And we'll look at a fun way to get around in the Netherlands. Rent a bike for as long as you are in Amsterdam. It's the easiest way to move around. Come along for the ride. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What's a fancy art museum doing all the way out in Bentonville, Arkansas? Well, the director of Crystal Bridges tells us in just a minute. A little later on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Rick Antonsen remembers the fun of a classic road trip as he motored west from Chicago to L.A. on Route 66. He found more than just American nostalgia along the way. And a guide from Amsterdam tells us how the Dutch just love to bicycle everywhere. They even make it easy for tourists to catch some of the fresh air and exercise on the many bike routes of Holland. A couple months ago, I visited the Crystal Bridges Museum in Arkansas. It's one of America's newest major museums located in Bentonville, what some might presume is an unlikely small town in the Ozark foothills of northwest Arkansas for a fancy art museum. Opening the Crystal Bridges Museum in 2011 was a labor of love for Alice Walton of the wealthy family that owns Walmart. She wanted to provide an architecturally exciting new venue to celebrate American art for the citizens of their corporate headquarters around Bentonville. I was privileged to get a personal tour of the museum by its executive director, Rod Bigelow. And I was so inspired that I told Rod, we've got to get you on our radio show. And today, Rod's taken some time away from his busy schedule to be our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. Rod, thanks for joining us. I'm really excited to be here, Rick. What an exciting gig, making the Alice Walton vision come through with this amazing museum. And you get to be the president and executive director. What's the mission of Crystal Bridges? And what's it like for you to be at the helm of that? Well, really, Alice founded the museum with the idea of creating access to great art for absolutely everyone, and and specifically for her. She grew up in this place in northwest Arkansas that didn't have access. And so she, through her life, uh, really learned about America through the eyes of artists. She read, looked at paintings, and then she started acquiring them. And so she wanted to share that benefit with new generations of people all across this region and the country. What a beautiful thing. You know, she, she has the, the means to gather a bunch of art just for her own. And then she thought, no, we got to make this bigger and make it accessible. And I suppose the fact that admission is free is in keeping with your mission. Oh, right. The ability to provide access to this museum free changes the game. So absolutely anyone can come to the museum. They can spend five minutes or they can spend five hours. And we're nestled on 120 acres of forest so they can come in and out of the building to experience American art in any way they'd like. It's an incredible setting that just meshes with nature in such a, a delightful way. You know, I, I read about uh, in your mission statement and so on that Crystal Bridges features five centuries of American artists in permanent and temporary galleries. At its core is the mission to provide access to all who wish to explore art and to showcase the connection it serves to a sense of equity and justice for all Americans. 
What does a museum of art have to do with uh, equality and justice for all Americans? Well, you know, for years and years, people have been going to museums who are, uh, I would say, extremely well-educated. They're, they have means and it felt right for them to go to a museum. And we're changing that calculus so that absolutely everyone can feel comfortable in a museum. It doesn't mean you have to have an art history degree. It doesn't mean you have to come from a wealthy family. It means that you want to learn, you want to explore. And our objective is to ask questions and tell stories. At the end of the day, we are storytellers and we like to tell stories that are untold. And those are often artists that are working in your own communities. They're your barber, they're your mechanic, they're your school teachers, and they're people all over this country that are doing amazing things. And they've been doing it for centuries. And so that's what we're trying to do is really create the idea of what is an American it meant something very different in the 18th century than it means today, and everyone has access. And I would imagine how you write up those little descriptions, which are so artfully done in your museum, is is a priority with that mission in mind. Otherwise, somebody just stands in front of something that could be a Norman Rockwell kind of charm 200 years before Norman Rockwell, and you wouldn't even know it. Right. I mean, our curatorial team does an amazing job of condensing <laughs> the, the questions of an object and artwork Uh, in 200 words or less. And Norman Rockwell's Rosie the Riveter is the perfect example because if you don't look closely, you don't see that she is stomping on Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler's writing, and you don't see... I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. fascinating. you got to point that out because she's inspiring anyways, but if she's standing on a copy of Mein Kampf, you get the context. (laughs) Yes, and she... I mean, she's an incredible woman. She is just signifying her strength. It's an amazing thing. So, you know, when I mentioned in the intro that there's five centuries of American art, a lot of people kind of go, what, 500 years? And you get to collect these and curate them and organize them and and present them in a way that's accessible. What's a handful of of masterpieces or pieces that you're most excited to share? There's famous ones and there's ones that would be underappreciated that really have a message. Well, that's the hardest question anyone asks me, Rick, because it's often the last work that I saw is sort of the one that is most meaningful to me because they're about the stories of these artists. But if you think back to even the indigenous culture that was here far before America was founded, before colonial times, there's amazing work that has to be referenced through the culture of this country. And But you think about, I, we talked about Rosie the River for a moment. She's incredibly important. Uh, we have an amazing object called a, an infinity room that's by an artist named Kusama. And you step into this room and it is uh, a mirrored room that transports you basically in her eyes through infinity. And, and so you walk in and it's an illuminated room where you're standing in just a few of you in darkness. And yet you see these points of light that surround you and continue to move forward. And it's impossible to describe. You just have to experience it. Rod Bigelow is celebrating 10 years as the executive director at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Rod has more than 20 years in the art world. He was in management at the Toledo Museum of Art and in Seattle and Tacoma in Washington before helping Crystal Bridges open in Bentonville, Arkansas in 2011. They also opened a contemporary art and performance space in downtown Bentonville just a few years ago. It's called The Momentary. Their website is crystalbridges.org. So, of course, Rod, Crystal Bridges wouldn't exist if Alice Walton didn't love art. Uh, Tell us a bit about the Walton connection and and Alice's passion for American art and, and what it's like working with her. Oh, yeah. So Alice is really the visionary. She calls herself the chief cheerleader of Crystal Bridges. So she is the one that's 
um, always setting the vision for us, but also cheering us on the entire time. And there are occasions where she'll sort of hover in the lobby and she'll scoop you up and she will take you on a tour of the galleries and tell you the personal stories of how something was acquired or what it means to her or how she sees different communities or the, or the country through her eyes. But it's really a, a, through her generosity that we exist. She, she gave this amazing collection to us. Um, and, you know, there, there are some of the things that she loved personally, but also influenced greatly by experts in the field that are really building a collection to tell a massive story of what America is and how to celebrate the American spirit. Man, I thought I was privileged to have a private tour by you, but I didn't realize there was an option to get Alice. <laughs> What's it like to like go it. on? I, I understand you go on buying trips with her, actually going to auctions and so on. That well, must be interesting. It, it is. It's a fascinating process. Just for for acquiring work, sometimes there will be objects where people call us and say, we're looking to sell an object and we'll go through the analysis. Often our curatorial team is there sourcing and finding amazing objects. We're very discerning about what we bring into the collection because we don't want to have it grow very fast and very far. But there are occasions when we go to auction and and that's a very disciplined process as well that's well informed by market, etc. So just just between you and me, nobody's listening here, but um, (laughs) if if you know Alice Walton is hell-bent on getting a personal piece of art and you travel all the way to New York or London for this auction and you're with her there to counsel with her and so on, is she, when push comes to shove, going to pay whatever she needs to pay to get that piece of art? Definitely not. Alice is incredibly no. self-disciplined, and she will uh, make sure that she is being thoughtful around um, purchasing any work of art. And we do that as an institution because all of our dollars that we're using are donated. Um, okay. So it, all the funds, uh, the funds come from the Walton family, but they come from many others, from corporations and individuals around the country. Now, part of your job description, I understand, is is looking after issues of equity and diversity and so on. I, I know that's a theme, is to deal honestly with history. And you've been at this for a while now. But in the last decade, uh, there's been a, a trend, I think, to rewrite our history and this kind of thing. How does that impact your work? Because you're trying to deal honestly with history, but people don't want to look honestly at, at some dark issues of our distant past or even our recent past. Well, I think what you you can't recognize it more than when you walk into our very first gallery space where we introduce the collection, where one side of the wall is a work of art by Nari Ward that's called We the People. And it looks very much like the founding document, the book, but it's made of shoelaces. And it's it's intended to represent the idea of We the People meant something very different when we first founded this country, but then what it looks like today and who's included And then you look across from that work to probably about 20 works of art that are made and represent people from every aspect of this country, Uh, historic, contemporary. There's a fracker in there. So we're talking about every aspect of life. And so it really does sort of open up the idea of who is American. And it's really all about how we interpret it, how we think about it, who's there with you, what's the discussion, and we ask questions about it. So are you, you're saying you're you're able to push this, even though there might be in the culture wars that are politicizing so much of our society, some pushback from more conservative corners in in your state of Arkansas? Well, I think our objective, we're in a great space in America. And it, our question is, what does it mean to be a museum in the heart of America? And how do we have a different kind of discussion rather than trying to push this country apart? How do we unify it in different ways? And we can do that by 
having people have conversations in galleries by asking great questions, by putting works of art that may surprise you or delight you, that invoke different ideas or questions. And, and really, it's about bringing people together and having those conversations. We've been talking with Rod Bigelow. He's the executive director of the Crystal Bridges Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas. And Rod, I've seen you working, and I've seen how you just throw your whole energy and spirit into this. What a wonderful gig for somebody who appreciates the value of art. What are you most um, excited about, and what are you most proud of with the work you've been doing in the last few years? Well, I have to tell you, our team is incredibly thoughtful um, and impressive. So I'm excited about how do we continue to do program. At the museum, we do about 800 programs a year, and they range from working with pre-K all the way up to seniors, and we're, what I'm really excited is about planning a new expansion in the museum. So we're adding about 100,000 square feet. The museum itself is 200,000 right now. So we're adding this massive addition to the building where we'll be able to add um, indigenous art and craft, which is kind of absent in the collection today. So we know that the, the story of America has to include multimedia, different dimensions, and build that into hmm. the new space. Rod Bigelow, thanks for joining us. And best wishes with your work at Crystal Bridges Museum in Arkansas. Thanks, Rick. We'll hop on a bike in the Netherlands in just a bit. But first, let's see what a road trip in search of the old Route 66 can show us about America. It's Travel with Rick Steves. If there's a ribbon that helps tie America together, it could be the venerable Route 66. Starting in Chicago and ending 2,400 miles and eight states later in Los Angeles... It evolved from animal trails to native footpaths to an explorer's route. It was later followed by covered wagons and railways. Eventually, it became a roadbed for rickety cars and tentative trucks, followed by sleek vehicles of chrome, glistening paint, and finned taillights. And we're joined today by a Canadian who traveled it for perhaps a new perspective on America. Rick Antonsen, who served as the president of Tourism Vancouver and was an ambassador for the Vancouver 2010 Olympic Games, joins us now for some thoughts about the kicks a Canadian can get on Route 66. Rick, thanks for being here. Well, to be able to talk about America's mother road, it's a privilege bringing an out-of-country context through other eyes, maybe less judgmental in some ways. I like that, and that's kind of fundamental to me as Americans really can... I always like to say we can learn more about our home by leaving it and looking at it from a distance. Perhaps we can learn more about our home by letting people who all their lives have looked at us from a distance and can share their perspective. Now, you've traveled far from the beaten path through countries like Belarus, Mongolia, Tibet, Libya, Algeria, even North Korea, and you've written several books. You've written To Timbuktu for a Haircut, A Journey Through West Africa, for example. Uh, But this book is closer to home. The book is Route 66 Still Kicks. Lay the groundwork. Tell us, what was this great American road trip for you as a Canadian visitor? Well, 2026 will be the 100th anniversary of the founding of Route 66. And as you've described it, it began one of the main advocates groups for for getting it paved were were bicycle routes, were the, the postal workers who wanted to see better transportation. And a gentleman in Oklahoma, Cyrus Avery, is known as the father of Route 66 because he pushed his fellow road commissioners in the other eight states to link them all together. And in 1926, it formally became 
designated not quite as a transnation mm-hmm. highway because it begins in Chicago but and Chicago works down. to L.A. That's that's pretty it's a long necessary. Way. Eight yeah. states. I mean, yep. New York to Chicago. We know that's connected. Yes, exactly. But Chicago to L.A. Exactly. That's good, especially a hundred years ago. Maybe it was um, officially designated then, but I guess it wasn't actually. The paving of it wasn't completed for another decade until the late 1930s. Well, and one of the charms about Route 66 today is that you can still go on some of the old portions. And some of them never got paved because they were bypassed by politics, civic politics. Ah. Somebody influential wanted to root it in another area. Some cities you go through, there are three different old routes for Route 66. You can't drive start to finish Hmm. 2,400 miles on old Route 66. Much of it is now super highway. Right. You can do the journey from Chicago to L.A. in, you know, two and a half, three days if you want to get up every morning right. and chase pavement. Right. But if you want to get off looking at some of these old places, and you'll come across ghost towns today. You'll come across yeah. the odd old cafe that's still open. You've got to make a point to do that, I suppose. You, you, wrote in, you wrote in your book, with some determination, grit, and a good sense of direction, one can still find and drive 90% of the original Route 66 today. So that's about 2,000 miles out of the original 2,400 miles. That survives. But tell me about the importance, if you are driving that, to not just follow what your mapping app is going to tell you to do, but you want to get on the old road and you want to taste the uh, the good old days. You do, and there's some wonderful long stretches, sort of Missouri, Oklahoma, where you feel as American as an American can feel because you've got the car, which is so important to many, many, many Americans. You've got the dream of the old. You're You're driving by places that you just, you, you want to stop. So this is not to be rushed. This is not hurried travel. You want to poke into a place and then, you know, you drive another five miles and you say, geez, we should stop again because yeah. that looks like an interesting store to buy something in or just to poke around or the museums. And, you know, for 2026, there are going to be a lot of anniversary celebrations, right. but they've already begun. Communities along Route 66 celebrate being part of America's Main Street. What for you, as a Canadian who's looked over the border all your life, what were some of the iconic things that is Americana, you know? Just think of a couple of them. Was it like you didn't shave, you, you drank root beer, you, you had breakfast at a greasy spoon? What were some of the things that made it America? All of the above. So my travel buddy, Peter, had said at the start, let's go find all the old parts of Route 66. So that meant in some cases you'd go through a community that had re-embraced its heritage so they would have a gas station from the 1920s all refurbished. And in fact, right. we stopped at one where the owner couldn't gas up our, our vehicles, but he said, I'm going to get you a couple of root beers. Exactly as you described, it was quintessential. You know, I, don't care, I don't care if, it's, if they bought a kit that says how to start your 59er diner restaurant. <laughs> I mean, you know, because they don't have all these things originally. It's all just they bought a kit and they've recreated the old life. But I'm a sucker for that. I like to sit at a little table where you've got that one of those little tabletop jukeboxes. Yes. You know? Yeah. That's right. fun. And it still takes quarters or it still takes, <laughs> takes some change. When Route 66 was new, so was, was travel by, by a vehicle. And they yeah. had small trunks, so you couldn't put a lot of stuff in them. Right. They had small gas tanks. You couldn't go that far without needing to gas up again. And they would rattle loose. So outside of most towns where Route 66 went in those days would be what became known as gasoline alleys because people would pull in, get their vehicle serviced, and they'd go to a Ma and Pa diner, which often actually were purchased by kits 
and sent out so yeah. that they could construct a diner and then all the different motels. And the one in one town wouldn't have the same name as one 12 miles down the road or 50 miles down the road. Everything was novel. Everything was unusual. Everything was unexpected. That is so fun. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Rick Antonson. He's written books about his travels. He's written a book, To Timbuktu for a Haircut. He's, he's written a book about the great train ride across Canada, Train Beyond the Mountains. And today we're talking about his book, Route 66 Still Kicks. And Rick Antonson's website is quite easy. It's rickantonson.com. That's A-N-T-O-N-S-O-N. Rick, one of the very important things to do is choose your overnights so you have that more in-depth experience. And I was looking at the map of the Route 66 in your book, and it showed where you slept. And you slept in Baxter Springs. You slept in Mustang, Oklahoma. You slept in Amarillo, Texas, and Gallup, New Mexico. How many nights were you on in hotels? Maybe a dozen. A dozen. Tell us about the experience in, in one of these towns that is just... Not Santa Fe, where everybody knows and goes, but something that's a little more dusty and, and godforsaken, maybe. Well, and we did not know where we would sleep any night when we got up in the morning. We had an open day. We had some old maps, so we would digress. We would say, you know, there is something that used to be Route 66 from 1926, maybe to the mid-1930s. It's gravel road. It's a dead end today, but we're going to drive it. So we would do that. Where we would end up around dinner time was really uncertain. So we didn't have any plans in advance. We would often find, this still happens today, old motels, places that you just know have been around for a long, long time. Yes, there are many you drive by that are abandoned and they're in total disrepair, obviously not open. But you'd come to others in many, many small communities and we'd just look at each other and say, there, we'll pull over. We'd go in, get a couple of rooms, and you would feel like you stepped across the threshold into the 1940s or the 1950s. It, it was, you just kind of like felt I'm privileged. So, I'm so glad. I'm so happy to hear that. Would you say uh, it's reasonable to hit the road and as long as you're flexible, be able to find places as you go? Yes. And my encouragement would be gas up and just be ready for a longer drive if you're through a spell yeah. where you're not seeing yeah. a place that you're comfortable staying. Be open to not having this sort of sense of, okay, I need three, four stars, five stars, or whatever. Of course not. They're there, yeah. but you also have this wonderfulness of, wow, this is a moment I am doing something that I could have done in the 1960s, and I'm doing it today. Tell me about one memorable meal you had, because I did a trip once, a 20-city and 20-day road trip from Seattle to Tallahassee, and every night I gave a lecture in a different town along the way, small towns, oh, wow. just for fun. And one of the rituals for me was every morning we'd get up and we'd drive an hour to get to a town that really had no tourism and no visitors, none of that kind of industry, and just look for a good greasy spoon for breakfast, you know. Tell me about your greasy spoon fantasy. Love it. Well, we stopped at one place for breakfast, middle of nowhere. We sat down and the fellow introduced himself. He was sitting across from us and he talked. He was back and forth. It was just so engaging. And then in came one of his friends who said, hi, good morning, my name's Gene. Topped up our coffee, sat down with with Homer right across from us. And then their third buddy comes in and says, morning, my name's Gene. Tops up her coffee, sits down. <laughs> You're all the together. third buddy came in and says, morning, my name's Gene. So it was Homer and three Jeans <laughs> in this little Oklahoma town. We had pancakes, 
that the owner had made up, and it was almost like there was a magic sauce in them. Are Best you, pancakes I've ever you had. You guys, you were the uh, big city kids from outside. You came exactly. in there. You sat down, and, and the local gang joined yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, and, and they just, they probably get there every morning for their coffee, but they said, you're in the heartland of America. This is where the country is. This is who, who we are when we're at home. I need a dose of that. I really do. Rick, you quoted a truck driver in California who declared, you'll never understand America until you've driven Route 66, and that's old Route 66 all the way. Was he onto something there? Oh, he, and this is before we'd gone, and his admonition about get out and do this because you'll understand a country that often doesn't understand itself. And fellow Americans often don't understand their own country. But when you're driving Route 66, you encounter left-leaning, right-leaning, political this, political that. But you encounter people who are who they are when they're at home and their the self-confidence is evidence, their sincerity is evidence. But you have to be a traveler who's willing to sit down and engage with the person right across from yeah. you. And you have to let yourself be the stranger. And I've often felt that when I travel, I have a personal responsibility to my myself to meet as many people who are different than me that I can. To me, that's the litmus test of a good traveler, is not to seek out people that are just like them, but seek out people who your new friendship will actually give you culture shock, challenge you to see things a little differently and see that as the not a threatening thing, but a constructive thing, the growing pains of a broadening perspective. And on the road, it's the perfect classroom. I love both of those, perfect classroom and growing pains of a broadening perspective. I often would find out I was embarrassed by not knowing some local history, that I felt awkward about uh, Mm. a a view that I had that had never been challenged. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we already know what we think. We already know what books we've read. To sit down and hear somebody else recommend a local history book or someone else tell you about a musician that started out in that town and then you recognize the music, all of that, it's fresh. And your your eyes and your ears open and then your, your, your mouth drops. Canadian-based travel writer Rick Antonsen's our guest on Travel with Rick Steves as he relives the pleasure of a classic American road trip out west along the old Route 66. His memoir is called Route 66 Still Kicks, Driving America's Main Street. Rick's latest book describes a train adventure with his grandson. It's called Train Beyond the Mountains, Journeys on the Rocky Mountaineer. We have links to his work with this week's show. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. Rick, you wrote halfway through your 12-day trip this. I'd already shed enough misconceptions about the United States to fill our car's trunk. But I also confirmed in my mind that the myth is as important to America's self-esteem as is fact. What about this myth of America? Americans hold halfway on to a bunch of partial stories and embellishments, whether it's folk heroes or, hey, this really happened in America or this was invented here. There's just a a lot of that sometimes overwrought but justified pride that then gets challenged when you realize, gosh, you know, this community in the Depression had everybody leaving it. And now new folks have decided to call it home. So they retell the tales of how it's always been a wonderful place to live. Well, you know, it was a tough place to live. People lost their mortgages, up went their homes for sale. They had to leave the farms behind. You know, when John Steinbeck called it the mother road, this is because people were 
going and leaving the, the trauma of the dirty 30s and trying to get to a better life in California. I like those myths, too, because yeah. there's always a grain of insightfulness. And instead of throwing away a myth, go, why is there that myth? And allow it to be a myth. And you, you kind of embrace it because it's clever and it's fun. And at the core of it is the humanity. Yeah. It's the individual troubles and challenges met and failures. And Route 66 itself was a flawed project in many cases and was rerouted by politics and had lots of dynamics around it. But it was always a work in progress. And even today, it's being refurbished in spots and being left as it was in other spots. You know, there's so many stories in your book about different personalities that have something to do with, with Route 66. Woody Guthrie, Mickey Mantle, uh, John Steinbeck, uh, Al Capone even. I mean, you wrote about how he lobbied to get Route 66 paved and fast so he could have a speedy getaway with his bootleg liquor. But what about the stories of regular people? That's what carbonates the experience. Tell me about a particularly memorable interaction you had with some regular Joe and that you still remember and treasure. So I'll call her a regular Jean. Thank you. She was a waitress, if that's the right term to use, in a little diner in Missouri, and she'd never been 20 miles east or 20 miles west of where she'd lived. She was perhaps in her 40s or 50s, had no ambition or desire or need to go any further. And it told me, taught me, that one can be centered in a very small place. One can be fulfilled. She had no expectations. She loved the fact that we were going, passing through. But it was almost as though we'd shown up on a, a stage that was the same the day before or three days before, or three years before, and would be the same next year. We just happened to be new to her. But she was there for a traveler the same way the next day, and she gave us local tales about uh -huh. why she was there and why she loved the place. She understood we were going to move on. She had no desire to move on herself. And I thought to be that anchored as a person with your local church, your local school, your friends, your family, it was um, like a, a linchpin of America there, self-confident, unabashed, and proud. You know, you've just given, shined a light on on my fundamental ethic about travel. You know, the idea is to get out and connect. But if there's nobody who's rooted in where we're getting out to, the connection is kind of weak. Perfect. Well said. It's perfect. Yes. This is so much fun. Thanks for sharing your adventures on Route 66, which still kicks. Let's just top it off with a phrase that you gave me in your book that I just am fascinated by. You said Route 66 is a 2,400-mile-long declaration of independence. How so? Every person we met was different, had their own views that might parallel somebody we'd met two days before, might be totally different, but each person was a person. They were there. Some of them, you could sense that their shoes were actually growing roots into the ground. Others had been around the world and come back to live in a small community because what they'd seen enchanted them, but this is where they felt they belonged. And there's nothing more independent than being where you are and feeling, this is me. I'm centered, and this is where I want to be home. I just love it so much when travel can be a transformational experience. And Rick, your book, Route 66, Still Kicks, Driving America's Main Street, is a very good example of that. 
Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you. Get your kicks on Route 66. Get your kicks on Route 66. There's no better city to explore on a bike than Amsterdam. We'll hear how the Dutch make bicycles a priority that you can enjoy, too. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Amsterdammers love their bikes. And when visiting as a tourist, there's no better way to experience Amsterdam than on two wheels. And it also gives some insights into Dutch culture and values. To take us on a virtual bike tour of Amsterdam, we're joined today by Dutch tour guide Dennis Heritz. And Dennis has been living and working in Amsterdam for 25 years, and now he joins us to talk a little bit about biking in his beautiful city. Dennis, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Where is your bike, and is it properly locked up? Uh, yes, it is. Well, which bike are you talking about, I should maybe uh, ask, but... Um my city bike, the crappy rusty one, is actually uh, outside, locked very well uh, with uh, two locks. But my uh, expensive racing bike is in my apartment. Uh, I guess like a lot of us, I have more than one bike. I would imagine there's more bikes than there are people in Amsterdam. <laughs> uh, yes, they are, well, there actually are. Uh, Amsterdam has 940,000 people at the moment. And we're talking about one and a half to two million bikes so much more. And, and also in the country, there are uh, more bikes than people. And uh, I actually read that there's only one country in the world with more bikes than inhabitants, and that is the Netherlands. Wow. So there's a lot of bikes in the city. There's a lot of bikes in the country. There's probably a lot of bikes in the bottom of the canals, too. Yes. Uh, <laughs> every year, several thousand of them uh, fall into the canals. Uh, yeah, you have to be a little bit lucky to spot the boat, but city council does have a boat with this electric arm that grabs bikes out of the water. Uh, if you see that boat in the morning, the platform behind it is empty. Uh, at the end of the day, there's a pile of <laughs> 30 to oh. 40 rusty bikes on top of it. That's an Amsterdam site I have yet to see. That sounds great. Hey, Dennis, you know, the, the Dutch, it's not an accident. The Dutch have, have made a point to design their cities for bikes over cars. How's that working in Amsterdam or in, in the Netherlands in general? What, what is the government actually doing to favor bicycles? Uh, well, first of all, making bike paths everywhere. Uh, there are many parts of the country that are reachable by bike and maybe not even by car. And I, I'm talking about parts of the forest, uh, lakes, uh -huh. the beach. It also already starts at a very young age. Uh, I don't know if you know, but all Dutch children at the age of 10 have an official biking exam at school, which is to, uh, yeah, to tell them this is what you're probably going to do for the rest of your life, uh, a lot of biking. Uh, but it's also huh. a serious business uh, because you are actually part of traffic. Yeah, they're, they're on the road just like a car, and the police will treat you like a driver. You have the same rules and the same penalties if you're if you're not following the rules of the road. And... For a 10-year-old in the Netherlands, that must be an exciting sort of coming of age. All of a sudden, their world becomes bigger. Yes. Uh, I don't remember, but my mom told me about that day, and she told me that uh, I was so happy because at the end of the day, you get your uh, semi-official biking certificate, <laughs> uh, which Good. is quite a big thing. And she told me that uh, I looked at her and sort of with the idea that I can bike everywhere in the world now. So yeah. I guess a little bit that feeling you had when you got your driving license, but then for the bike. And But you're 10 years old. Well, we're going to be almost double that when we get our car license. 
Yes. And I understand the police the police really do enforce the the laws of the road whether you're in a car or a bicycle. For example, uh texting. If you're looking at your phone and and texting as you're pedaling around town, you can get a ticket. Yes, uh, at the moment you are even not allowed to hold your phone in your hand anymore while biking. Wow. Not at all. And this is because uh yeah, welcome to the Netherlands, uh, we always tend to go into a discussion with our police force, and I think they were a little bit yep. done uh, with these discussions. So even if you're not using it, you're not allowed to hold it in your hand anymore while biking. Oh, that's good to know. And a tourist gets no slack. I mean, if a tourist bikes in a uh, in a no-biking zone, like a big pedestrian street, Kalverstraat, I think, is mostly for yep. pedestrians. If you're biking in that, it can be an expensive mistake. Yeah, also for uh, going through a red light, uh, for not having a front and back light. Right. Yeah, because in America, we don't we don't think of ourselves as living by the rules of the roads for people who are just casually biking in the United States. But in Amsterdam, it's it's serious business. I understand in, in Amsterdam or in the Netherlands, you're experimenting with intersections with no signs and no lights. Yes. Uh, one of the first tests was behind Central Station. And uh, what happens is that uh, if you don't put any traffic lights or any traffic signs on a crossing, you tell people to start thinking themselves. And because of that, uh, no accidents happen on that crossing because, uh, yeah, people automatically slow down. Uh, You know, there's always one of two that, you know, just keep on going. But in general, everybody pays attention and respects each other. So it's, it's working out very well. On some a of lot of eye con- I would imagine a lot of eye contact. You, you yes. get eye contact with yeah. somebody. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I've seen that in several cities around Europe, where they all of a sudden they don't have a stoplight, they don't have signs, and everybody you know just kind of goes smartly through there. Uh, and I'm skeptical, but it always seems to work. This is travel with Rick Steves. We're getting a view of Amsterdam from the bike today, and it's with Dennis Heritz. And Dennis leads private tours in Amsterdam, where he's lived and worked for 25 years now. Uh, His website is lovemycitytours.com if you want to know more about the work that Dennis does. Hey, Dennis, when I'm in Amsterdam, I believe there's like a one-inch thick red paved asphalt that indicates a bike lane, right? You've got sort of a red carpet of pavement for the bikers. Yeah, uh, also to make the bike path clear to people visiting. Uh, for me, it's. Ah. Uh, I understand that when I walk towards the street that there's a bike path just before I reach that street. Uh, but for people who mm-hmm. are not used to the biking, um, they don't know about it. And so it's mostly to make the bike paths visible. You know, I just think it's the green future. I was in Amsterdam uh, with you. You were helping update my book as we spent a day together. And there was a street that used to be a busy four-lane pile of, of gas-guzzling traffic. And now... It's got grass, it's got rails for the tram lines, yep. it's got beautiful red asphalt um, bike lanes, and it's got pedestrian paths, it's got trees, and you hear the sound of the birds. Uh, we were going out to the um, Botanical Garden, I believe, and you know the, the street I'm talking about. And it's, Yes, I do. I, I felt like this is the future, and it's a very thoughtful integration of public transportation and biking. You've got to have them working together to effectively replace the need for cars, a lot of Americans would like to be green, but the, the the reality is you can't get there unless you have a car. But with the Netherlands, I think 50% of all public transit rides start with a bicycle, and the bike feeds into the public transit, right? Yeah, that's true. And especially in a city uh, like Amsterdam, uh, of course, in the countryside, it, it's a little bit different because the distances are, are bigger there. 
Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, the area where we were together, one of those streets is actually what we call a bike street. So this is not yeah. a car street, a bike street. Um, bike street means, and the signs will tell you when you enter, that a car is a guest. Um, yeah, hopefully everybody knows how to act when you're supposed to be a guest. That means if I'm biking in the middle of that bike street, you are not allowed to use your horn and tell me to move aside. I can actually stay in the middle. And wow. the maximum speed is 30 kilometers per hour, which is 18 miles per hour. 18 miles per hour, 30 kilometers an hour, yeah. Yep. So we, uh, we had bike paths, but now we have bike streets where a car is considered a guest. A lot of Americans are are just shocked that the Dutch generally do not wear helmets when they're biking around the city. Uh, our image of a biker is hunched over and helmeted, and in the Netherlands, a biker is sitting up and bareheaded. It's like, I guess it's like walking with wheels. Um, how do the Dutch feel about that? Because Americans are just almost appalled that you would be on a bicycle without a helmet. It, 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 I guess it's because we think we are the best bike drivers in the world. Uh, and we don't need to uh, wear a helmet. For me, it's always been like that. As a child, when my parents teached me how to ride a bike, I was actually wearing a helmet. But as soon as I knew how to ride a bike at the age of six, seven, uh, the helmet went off uh, because uh, some people think that the helmet causes a yeah, fake idea of safety. Uh, yeah, so now these days, everybody drives the bike without a helmet. Uh, I do have to say people who drive in the city uh, on their city bike where you sit straight up, they don't wear a helmet. If uh, me and my friends go on our 21-speed racing bikes out into the countryside, we do wear helmets. So that's a bit of a different uh, thing there. Okay. So at the beginning of our discussion, you mentioned you've got your old one-speed workhorse bicycle and that's how you, you get around the city. And again, it's like walking with wheels. Yes. But at home, you've got your fast bike with the clipped um, pedals and, and shoes and all of that. And that would come with a helmet. Yes, because we also go very fast on those. And then you want to protect yourself. Yeah. We're looking at Amsterdam from the bike lane today on Travel with Rick Steves with tour guide and avid cyclist Dennis Heretz. You can find web links to our guests in the notes for each week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Um, you know, I just want to talk for a few minutes, Dennis, about biking in Amsterdam. It's so much fun. When I get to Amsterdam, the only other city that I do this is, is in Copenhagen. I have a bike with me the whole time. And I just, I literally get my bike at the bike rental place near the station and I walk it up to my hotel and I lash it in front of the hotel and that's my mode of transportation. If I had a, a taxi waiting for me, I, I would just tell him to go home. I'm, I'm going to use this bicycle. It just works better. Uh, you can enjoy biking around Amsterdam. What's some advice you would give somebody to enjoy a bike ride in the big city of Amsterdam? First of all, I would give everybody the uh, tip, uh, rent a bike for as long as you are in Amsterdam. It's the easiest way to move around, also the cheapest uh, way. Amsterdam is a very safe city to bike in. Uh, this is because we are all bikers, so also the people that drive the trams and the taxi drivers and the people driving the ambulances, they're all bikers, so they all know how to, uh, how to keep distance mm -hmm. and how to deal with bikers. Uh, a lot of people are downtown, and then sometimes it maybe looks a little bit scary, uh, but I can tell you, as soon as you're out of that area, it, it's so easy and comfortable to drive around, and uh, you can see so much more 
on the bike and actually be part of us, you know, like feel like a local yeah. or... Well, you, you should take a little time as a tourist to kind of think about the rules and the, and the standards for biking. What, what is most annoying to you about a tourist on a bicycle in Amsterdam? Um, most of the time they go quite slow because, uh, you know, people are afraid and then they tend to go slow on the bike. And as you know, the slower you go, the more difficult it is to keep balance. So you just got to pick up the pace uh, uh, a little bit. Um, besides that, I don't have too much problems with a tourist on a bike. Sometimes if they're in big groups, then it's a different but I mostly enjoy seeing them on a bike because I know what a bike does to me and how I feel on a bike. And I wish for everybody to experience that feeling. I feel great. I feel great on a bike. And I've for years, I've just that's my modus operandi. I pick up a bike on the first day and I drop it on the way to the train station on my last day. Uh, you got to know how to lock it up. I mean, I, I rent from Frederick Bikes. Um, and Frederick once told me, you must lock the frame to the, the, the hitching rack. Knock the wheel, the frame. And I said, okay, I promise. And uh, I locked my frame to the hitching rack for four days. On the last day, I got sloppy, and I just locked the wheel to the hitching rack. And I came out the next morning, and there was my wheel locked to the rack, and the rest of the bike was gone. And I had the embarrassing task of walking the wheel back to Frederick and saying, you were right, Frederick. I, I didn't lock the frame. So I just, and he said, he, he made me promise. If he wasn't going to charge me for the bike, he made me promise that every chance I get in my teaching, I will remind travelers to lock the frame, not the wheel, to the hitching exactly. rack. So I'm doing that. Yeah, he did very well by telling you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with our Dutch friend, Dennis Haditz. Dennis leads private tours in Amsterdam, where he's lived for 25 years, and he, like most of his neighbors, is very comfortable on a bike. Dennis's website is lovemycitytours.com. You know, I love biking in Vondel Park. That's the sort of central park of Amsterdam. That's a delight. Um, I love biking in the Jordaan area. That's the very charming area. And as you said, when you get off of the big streets, it's just, it's just you and a sleepy little neighborhood that you can joyride on in your bike. And then there's a street called Harlemmer Dyke, which I find is a beautiful street. And, and, and then you can take the bike across the river, the I River, IJ, and within 10 minutes you're in polder country. You're out there in the, with the charming canals and, and the polderland and the tulip fields. Uh, and that's uh, North Amsterdam. Uh, of, of those places, uh, do you have any suggestions or advice for us? One of my favorite uh, areas to go to by bike is the Amstel River. Uh, I would advise everybody to go there, f follow the river on one side, biking through the city, and then eventually you get out into the countryside. Uh, the Dutch countryside is beautiful. It's all flat, so it's quite easy to bike, passing by the windmills, uh, seeing all the green there. And then mm. you take one of the bridges, you cross the Amstel River, and you come back on the other side of the river. Uh, people actually call it the Rembrandt route because uh, Rembrandt used to sit there uh, quite a lot to make some of his paintings. Uh, so definitely the, definitely the Amstel River um, on top of the areas you just mentioned yourself. And also, yeah, don't forget uh, not just the city but the countryside. Am Amsterdam is not that big, so no matter where you are, within a 25-minute bike ride max, uh, you can be out in the countryside. And there are bike paths everywhere. This and it's very well so organized. Exciting. It's so exciting to think of big city Amsterdam as a springboard for the countryside. And because of the way... 
zoning goes or something like that, you really can get out of the city in 10 minutes on the bicycle. At the train station, there's a shuttle ferry. It's free, and it's fun to be on there because you're with all the commuters who are coming and going on their bikes. And this ferry goes back and forth. It's about a 10-minute ride. And you hop on that with all the locals with their bikes, and it lands on the other side of the river. And then you just head straight out, and pretty soon you really are below sea level, surrounded by, you know, farming and uh, beautiful fields. And you feel like, wow, where's the big city? Yeah, and it's quite easy to find your way back because, uh, as I told you before, my country is flat. So you'll always see the high buildings of Amsterdam. So you always know in which direction to go back. Uh, And it's also very organized, which means on every bike path crossing, there are signs guiding you towards the other little towns. And some people in the Netherlands speak English. Well, most of (laughs) us do. That's also quite easy. Yeah, I, w- I was being a little bit silly. I think every, every educated person I've ever met in the Netherlands speaks English. Dennis, you know, biking is so integral to the Dutch culture. We're just about out of time, but can you just talk just a moment about the different kinds of bikes that might be modified for people's mobility and also crazy things you've seen people doing with a bike? Well, first of all, we tend to transport uh, everything by bike, uh, not just our groceries, but also plants, animals uh, in the front uh, baskets. And one of the things I can always enjoy is to see people on the back of the bike. Uh, In a lot of countries, uh, sitting on the back of a bike is actually illegal. Uh, In the Netherlands, it's not. And in the Dutch cycling culture, uh, sitting on the back of the bike is a symbol of adventure and romance. Adventure means it's so much fun to jump on the back of your bike of your friends and just, you know, go out into the forest as a child or to a festival when you're older. But also romance. Uh, I never forget the first time my girlfriend was sitting on the back of my bike and I was driving her through the neighborhood. And and that was a big thing. And that never changed. Uh, Imagine the person you love sitting on the back of your bike holding you around the middle and you move him or her through the city. So, yeah, seeing somebody on the back of the bike, it's all it's a symbol of adventure and romance, and I very much like that. So try it one time. Oh jump, jump on the back of our bikes. We all know how to deal with it. We'll start riding, so it's not from standing still, and then you jump on the back, and, uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, go for it. <laughs> oh, Dennis, it's been so much fun talking to you about the bike culture of the Netherlands. And a moment ago, we mentioned that all the Dutch uh, speak English very well, it seems like. And the downside of that is it's tough for us tourists to learn any Dutch words. But two words that I love to say, and every tourist should know, Dankuvel, thank you very much, and Tootzins, which is goodbye, right? Yes, it is. So I would like to say Dankuvel. And then I would say Alsjeblieft, which means you're welcome. Ah, and then I'll say Tootzins. Tot ziens. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves Classroom Europe is a fast, free, and fun video archive. It's designed for teachers, travelers, and students. It gives you immediate access to some 500 short video clips from the Rick Steves Europe TV show library. 
Clips cover European history, art, culture, food, and geography. Google Classroom Europe or visit ricksteves.com to watch clips and create your own playlist. Teachers love it. Students do, too.